I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that if you do, you will turn in them to the passage that Tisha was just reading for us in Micah 5. You'll find our passage for today in the Bibles that are provided for you on the backs of the chairs on page 778 and 79. As I like to say, if any of those copies of the scriptures would bless you or someone that you know and you'd like to take it and keep it for yourself or give it away, we would love for you to do that. We'd be happy to replace that and for you to be blessed by it. Micah 5. I wonder what the ratio is of those who read the scriptures in an organized way through some kind of systematic reading plan versus those who read through the scriptures one book at a time based on how the spirit moves when they're done with one moving on to another. And for those who might just read the scriptures by reading a book and then selecting the next one, I wonder how often it might be the case that someone finishes reading a biblical book begins to think about what they'll read next, and concludes, I know, I'll study one of the minor prophets. It actually may not be all that uncommon in a church like ours, but all the same, it's kind of an inside joke among those who have been following the Lord for many years that the minor prophets can be a notoriously challenging read and notoriously challenging to understand and apply to our own lives because of the often poetic nature, the prophetic nature, and the historical context in which they were originally written being so different from ours. But as you already know, perhaps, we're going to be taking a brief look at one of those minor prophets today, and then three others in the next few weeks. And we'll be doing so in an effort to see Christmas hope in the minor prophets this Advent season. Because we're officially full swing into the Advent and Christmas and holiday season, our neighborhoods are filled with lights, it is no longer a reckless and irresponsible act to listen to Christmas music, you are now free to do so, and some stores have already been putting some of their Christmas decor on sale because many of us already have what we need. And yet, in my interactions with people, it seems like I have seen less enthusiasm and excitement about the commencement of the Advent and Christmas season than usual. I may be wrong about that, but that's what I've perceived. And of course, children aren't necessarily tending to be any less excited about the prospect of opening presents, so perhaps it hasn't affected them quite as much. But whether it's trends I see on social media or conversations that I've had with brothers and sisters in Christ, even private discussions that Kate and I have had over the last several weeks about how we feel this year, it seems that what I'm seeing is less hope than what perhaps there ought to be at this Advent and Christmas season. Now let me be clear, in no way would I ever want to downplay any of the very real and very challenging sorrows and trials that so many people endure in the holiday season. One example is a friend of Kate's and mine named Heather, she's our age, actually a couple years younger, 
And her husband suddenly passed away in 2021 from a fast-acting cancer that came upon them quickly and rocked their world. And so for her, since then, and for the rest of her life perhaps, Christmas will always carry a twinge of sorrow because her husband is now with the Lord and no longer with her and their 10-year-old boy. And so clearly that kind of Christmas-related sadness needs no criticism, needs no judgment, needs simply compassion. But even Heather has told us about how she does nonetheless seek to work hard at intentionally pursuing joy in the middle of her sorrow during this season because of her hope being in Christ. And that's the kind of hope I'm talking about. Not mere warm and fuzzy feelings of Christmas cheer, but the real and certain hope that the people of God have because of who Christ is and what he has done. And so in a way, I'm hoping to address a problem of feeling hopeless during the Advent and Christmas season, but not because all feelings of sadness and sorrow during Advent are wrong, Rather, because it's at Christmas that true, deep, and lasting hope has arrived. Now, I'm under no delusion that these four relatively brief passages in the Minor Prophets over the next few weeks will suddenly and irreversibly wash away every bad or sad feeling that you might have this Christmas. But the message of the Scriptures regarding the birth of our Savior is exactly what we need most when Advent and Christmas begin to feel like just another pass around the carousel of life or just another spin in the hamster wheel that we feel like we're running in. And the first passage is the one that Tisha just read for us. And in it, I think we see hope for the weak. What is the occasion surrounding these words? Who wrote them? Why? And what does it matter now? At the time of the writing of Micah's prophecy, the former kingdom of Israel, the nation of God's chosen people, had split. There were now two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And at the time of Micah's ministry was the great prophet Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah and Micah both spoke to the kingdom of Judah in the south, while Amos and Hosea, two names that you may recognize from other minor prophet books, ministered to Israel in the north. And part of the challenge with focusing on one passage and its message of hope for the week, as we're going to try to do today, is that we don't get the benefit of a full study, a full series in Micah, where we'd have a much clearer sense of the situation when Micah pens these words that we come to today. The situation in Judah was dire, and I'll try to summarize it. Basically, the southern kingdom of Israel had benefited from a materially prosperous period of time. And as a result, as is so often the case with the people of God then and the people of God now, they became, their prosperity and their earthly comfort led to spiritual sluggishness. And what followed was a a slew of sin problems. Micah, in his book, 
relatively brief book, speaks of injustice in the nation, corruption in the politics, idolatry among the people, lawlessness in the people of God. And the quantitative weight of these seven chapters of Micah has to do with Micah calling them out, speaking on behalf of the Lord to these people, indicting them for their sin, proclaiming God's displeasure with what they were doing, predicting their destruction, and calling, of course, for their repentance as well. That's hardly the kind of a message you get on a Christmas card in the mail, is it? We get these cards and they say, Sally's 10 and she loves soccer. Tommy's 12, he's getting straight A's. John got promoted. Laura's got a new hobby. Instead, the message in this was the Lord is planning a disaster against you in chapter 2, verse 3. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, he says, The rulers of the people do not care about justice. They pervert what is right. They make their judicial rulings based on how much of a bribe they get. And they teach the law merely for pay. That's hardly a warm and fuzzy Christmas message. So the situation in Judah was bad. The leaders were leading poorly. The people were disobedient. The Lord was being dishonored. And so Micah speaks. He speaks on behalf of the Lord. He calls for repentance. He warns of disaster. But as dire and bleak as the situation is, the situation is not without hope. Because more than once in Micah, he speaks of a remnant of God's people whom he will preserve. People of his who will be safe in his care in the end, even when all is said and done. Look at chapter 2 briefly. In verse 1, there's this proclamation of woe upon those who have acted wickedly. It says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. But then at the end of chapter 2, there's a promise of hope that a remnant of his people would be preserved. Look at verses 12 and 13. I will assuredly assemble I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Of course, right after that begins the numbers that we have of chapter 3, where some more descriptions of their wickedness that I've already mentioned are listed, such as in verses 9 through 12, which I referred to already. But then comes chapter 4, where Micah's words about the remnant of God takes shape more fully. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In other words... 
despite the wickedness of God's people, His righteous reign would ultimately prevail in the end. Look at verses 6 and 7. Skip down just a little farther. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Notice that the remnant in these verses would not be those who deserved rescue, but those that God would graciously save anyway. And now that we're nearly caught up to our text for today, why don't we just read chapter 4, verse 9 into our text in chapter 5. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will rise against him. Seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Just three more verses. Then... The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver." Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Perhaps the picture is coming a little bit more clearly into focus for you here as to what's going on in Micah. Judah's in trouble because they had sinned, and they were going to be judged. But God's covenant faithfulness would prevail. The suffering of his people would not last forever, even though they deserved to suffer. Because God 
is faithful. Faithful to his covenant. Faithful to his covenant people. He had set steadfast love on his people. And even though they deserved everything they were getting because of their unfaithfulness, God would nonetheless preserve a remnant. And in Micah 5, the people of God got a glimpse into the future regarding how God's grace would look. Here's how God's grace would be dispensed to his people. First of all, through the coming of a righteous ruler. You see this right in the middle of the section that we just read in verse 2. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now I should have left those three things, I should have left that area blank so you didn't think you had to write all that down. I'll be going through that over the next few minutes here. Despite the, we might say, national unrighteousness of God's people, and though there would be national destruction, righteousness in the nation would return through a righteous ruler of the nation chosen by God. You see that in these words here in verse 2? Look at what it's saying in the, right in the middle of verse 2 by working backwards in the middle of the verse. You see what it says. One who is to be ruler in Israel shall come forth for me from you. Do you see how I changed the order of that a little bit? To maybe help us understand what it's saying. One who is going to be the ruler in Israel will come forth for me, God says, from you. And so first of all, as you see, because I already have it up there on accident, and it's going to be that way with all the other slides. Sorry about that. This ruler would be first ordained by God. Ordained by God for his purposes. I find it interesting that, that it doesn't say that he will come forth from me for you. It says for me, or at least the way it's translated in my ESV, for me from you. Now, of course, the righteous ruler would be coming from God to, and he would also be for God's people to, but primarily, what Micah is saying here is that the Lord's chosen righteous ruler would serve the Lord's purposes. He would be for the Lord. He would be ordained by him, he would be sent by him, and he would serve him. But look also at the beginning of verse 2. Here we have a famous verse about the little town of Bethlehem. That's where this chosen ruler would originate from. Bethlehem is the you in verse 2 that the ruler would come from. It's the you that from you is talking about. You see that? And the reference to Bethlehem here is where the hope for the weak starts to come into focus because it says that he would come from Bethlehem who is too little to be among the clans of Judah. The word that's translated little for me in my English Standard Version in verse 2 is a word that could also be translated and is in other places in the Old Testament translated weak. Now, the word little is probably the best translation here because the idea is that Bethlehem's size 
compared to other Judaic regions, made it not worth mentioning. In other words, Bethlehem was no Jerusalem. Kind of like comparing Lockbuoy to Denver. <laughs> One commentator, Bruce Waltke, says that the word too little here could literally be translated insignificant with regard to its existence. So in other words, Micah is saying that the righteous ruler of God's kingdom people would come from a place that God's kingdom people would not necessarily expect a great ruler to come from. He would not be from Jerusalem. He would come from Bethlehem. And perhaps you're thinking, well, Bethlehem's kind of a big deal too because it was the birthplace of King David. That's to be tr- that's true, but that was many years previous. And at this point in Israel's history, Bethlehem had become an insignificant place that no one would count necessarily as a likely birthplace for a prominent person. But nonetheless, O little town of Bethlehem is exactly where the righteous ruler would come from. And so secondly, this ruler would have an ordinary birthplace. His arrival would be one that was rather ordinary. An arrival characterized by weakness in that way. But yet, notice what else verse 2 says about where this ruler would come from. It's not only Bethlehem that he would come from. He would come, at the end of verse 2, from of old, from ancient days. This language here signals that while the ruler would come from Bethlehem, his origin was really rooted somewhere else entirely. In fact, you could say it better perhaps that his origin was rooted somewhere else. Because from of old and ancient days would have signaled the reader that this righteous ruler's truest origin, if you even want to use the word origin, would be eternity. In other words, there wasn't really a starting place or time for this person at all. This person would be from eternity. In the past part of eternity. Such language and concepts are too much for our finite and feeble minds, but it's what it means. And so third, the righteous ruler bringing hope to God's people would also have origins in eternity. That's verse 2. That's the righteous ruler ordained by God of eternal origins coming through an ordinary birthplace. Isn't that astonishing? But that's not all because God's grace to His people would be administered through this righteous ruler who would lead the remnant to return. Look at verse 3 again. Therefore he, this ruler coming forth from of old, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So remember the context here. This is a nation filled with sin. There are greedy priests. There are corrupt Judges, the rich are oppressing the poor. The law of God is being disobeyed and even ignored. The covenant between God's people and God violated. 
A seemingly hopeless situation for the people of God in their relationship with God. But on the heels of his words prophesying that a righteous ruler would come through Bethlehem, Micah is saying here that their lack of repentance and the judgment that they deserved would not ultimately prevail. Because, even though, verse 3, they would be given up, as it says, for a time... A time in verse 3 characterized as painful like a woman's labor. Which, by the way, you may have noticed was language also used in the passage we read starting in verse, excuse me, chapter 4. A time characterized like a woman's labor. Painful time. Eventually, though, the brothers, the family of this kingdom ruler would return. They would not be exiled forever their return from exile would come, but not until, first of all, after a period of waiting. They would experience the consequences of their sin. In fact, many of these people would not live to see the day that the promised righteous ruler would appear. The nation would have to wait. Micah prophesied suffering that Judah would endure as a result of their sin, and there would be a season of suffering before the ruler's arrival. So the remnant would return, first of all, after a period of waiting, but it would also come through an act of divine intervention. Here's why I say this. Notice that verse 3 does not say, After some waiting and after some suffering, eventually they will come to their senses and make up their minds that they need to repent and then I will be able to restore them. It doesn't say that. It's the righteous ruler who facilitates the return, not them. It's the grace of that righteous ruler coming to to save them. It's not them saving themselves. The impression that we get in the context of the whole of Micah and this section in chapters 4 and 5 and the verses that we're focusing on now is that something was going to have to happen coming from outside them because of how dire their situation was. They couldn't muster up enough strength to bring about a full recovery. They weren't given a checklist to fill out before God would allow them to turn themselves around. No, it's the arrival of the righteous ruler that facilitates this return simply by his righteous and gracious power. It says there in the middle of verse 3 that it is these brothers. Brothers of the ruler. In In other words, they would be his family members. They would be his fellow countrymen who would endure this time of oppression and suffering and then when the labor pains were finished, the people would return. They would return to their God. They would return to the kingdom that God had for them through divine intervention, not through their strength. Not through their self-sufficiency, but through his salvation. Of course, the people of God hearing and reading this message would be wondering, who is this ruler? Who will he be? 
When will He come? Who is this chosen one who will facilitate the return of God's people to their place under God's gracious rule? Who is the one that will come to save from sin? Friends, it's Jesus. And I'd like to show you two passages in the New Testament that prove it. I have them up on the screen here for you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-6 through says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In other words, my friends, the Jews knew where the Messiah was going to be born because Micah 5 had prophesied it. Jewish rabbis, the Jewish people, believed that the birthplace of the Messiah, God's chosen ruler in Micah 5, would be Bethlehem. And when Jesus is born, Matthew, the author of that gospel, deliberately makes the connection to Micah 5 to show that the Jesus born to Mary and Joseph, who would grow up to preach the gospel, who would grow up to perform miracles and healings, and who would die on a cross and would be raised from the dead, is the one that Micah 5 was pointing to. Look also at Galatians 4. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It kind of sounds like Paul is saying, that God had ordained a specific time after a period of waiting when he would send his chosen one to intervene and draw sinners into his family. You see the connection I'm making between these two passages and our text in Micah? Jesus was, is the incarnate, sent Son of God born in Bethlehem, come to intervene and to facilitate the return of unrepentant rebels to the place of the Father's righteous and gracious rule. The Father who lovingly forgives sins and transforms rebels into family members, into brothers of the ruler. You know, my friend, that forgiveness and transformation is for everyone and anyone who receives Christ by faith. Who embraces Jesus as the Christ, as the chosen righteous ruler of God. And so if you've never embraced Jesus in that way, if you've never trusted in Him by faith as the one who came to save, today would be a great day for that. If you have any questions about how that happens, and other things that the Bible says about it. You'd like someone to take a few moments to pray with you and pray for you. Our prayer team, just like every Sunday, will be in the back. You'll see they have a lanyard on, and it'll say prayer team, and you can ask them to spend some time with you. 
They're prepared. They're fully qualified and ready to do it. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Micah prophesied. And that, my friends, is where hope for the weak lies. Because the last two verses of our text also tell us that rest would come through the strength of the ruler. Verse 4, and then that first line of verse 5, which the verse numberers should have just left in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Any of the members of the southern kingdom who were faithful to the Lord, however few they may have been, would have been glad to hear and read these words. The Lord's justice and righteousness would prevail. The wicked would be dealt with. A remnant would be preserved. God's chosen righteous ruler would come one day. That was good news for broken and weary Jews. Their ruler would be strong even as they struggled in weakness. Look back. Maybe you don't even have to turn a page, although I guess most of you are on devices. Scroll up to verse 7 of chapter 4. The lame I will make a remnant, those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. In fact, you could, you could start in verse 6. I should have said verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. Who is it that receives the blessings that come to the remnant that God saves and preserves? It's the lame. Who is it that benefits from the strength of the righteous ruler? It's those who were cast off. It's those who were afflicted. In other words, the weak. Those who were suffering the consequences of their own sins. Those who were living in the consequences of even others' sins. Those who did not collectively deserve to be on the receiving end of the faithful love of God, but who nonetheless are on the receiving end of His grace. Those who are incapable of saving themselves, but are nonetheless saved by the gracious hand of God. Those who look around them and see in their nation, in their community, in their family, even in their own hearts, a failure to measure up to God's righteous requirement. And even worse than simply failing to measure up, a rebellion against his law. A persistence in choosing their own way. Ignoring many loving calls to return in faith and in love. You see, this is why I think this passage has hope for us, even as it pointed them to a hope that was going to come when Jesus was born in the manger in Bethlehem. Because while we are situated in a new era that Jesus ushered in through his arrival and ministry and death and resurrection, friends, isn't it true that we too are in a position of weakness We are waiting for another day 
promised when Jesus would return at his second advent to consummate the kingdom of God permanently. And so while we wait for another advent, just as the Jews were waiting for the first advent, we look around and we see nations and communities and families and churches and our own hearts ravaged from the consequences of sin, broken because of the curse of the fall. And we feel weakness. The weakness of the frailty of our human bodies, our bodies that break down over time or suddenly. The weakness of sorrow and anxious minds and hearts. The weakness from being so weary of fighting a war against sin that often seems to be a losing one. And so as the Jews read and many memorized Micah's prophecy, they read these words and said, Oh Lord, please send our Messiah soon. And the people of God today do the same. But listen, listen carefully. We do it with an even more certain hope than they had. Because the promise of the first coming of the Messiah has been fulfilled. And so we have all the more reason to hope in the promise of his return. Look how Micah characterizes the nature of the Messiah in connection to the promise of his first coming. It says in verse 4 that he would be a strong shepherd. You see that in verse 4? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. The people of Israel were suffering in part because of so-called shepherds in the nation who were horrible at serving as shepherds. There was corruption. There was ministry for profit. There was false assurance given saying there is peace when there was no peace. It was just a big disaster. But the people of God, situated in weakness and in affliction and in brokenness and in sin, were given hope because a good, strong shepherd was on his way to shepherd his flock. And their hope wasn't in their own strength, it was his. They would have to wait upon the Lord to renew their strength by his strength. They couldn't depend on their own strength because they had none. And listen, friends, this is so important. Please listen carefully. Their lack of strength should not have been cause for them to be despondent or frustrated. Because it actually should have served as a reminder, a joyful reminder of the strength of their God. Have you ever thought about this? Friends, we are so quick to be depressed or anxious or angry or irritable or impatient with our weakness, with our failures, with our problems. But friends, those weaknesses should point us to how blessed we are to be in a state of dependence on God who is strong. 
Brothers and sisters, the people of God need to remember that being in a state of dependence on God is actually the most assuring and confident place that we can be. Why? Because God is totally dependable. There has never been one time in the history of the cosmos that he has made a mistake. There has never been a single mess up. Everything throughout the history of mankind has happened under his sovereign governance for a reason. Much of it has included horrendous pain for people. But God has always acted rightly. And when you understand that, when you believe that, then suddenly... Being weak and dependent on Him is actually a pretty great place to be. And so, even though our modern and Western sensibilities are so frustrated when we feel like we haven't got total control of our circumstances or that something's falling apart around us instead of thriving perfectly like we think it should, the reality is total dependence on the shepherd is the best place to be because He is strong. And sometimes... God is giving us opportunities to be reminded of our weakness so that we will remember we cannot trust in ourselves and we must trust in Him. And that's grace from Him to remind us of that. He would come. And He would come as a strong shepherd and also for His sheep's safety. Just a few minutes ago, I pointed out the words in verse 2 that said that the righteous ruler would come for God. He would be commissioned by God to accomplish God's mission. But he was also coming for the good of his people. And that's what the second half of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 is talking about. They shall dwell secure. He shall be their peace. Peace, security, safety, all ideas that would inspire hope in God's people who were situated in oppression and injustice and spiritual dryness and even national destruction. Shouldn't those words also, therefore, inspire hope for us? Knowing that while we're in a different time than these words were written, this same righteous ruling shepherd is the Jesus that we now worship as King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus who knows what it's like to feel human weakness like ours. After all, he was born in Bethlehem, too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. He was raised in a backwater town, Nazareth, where the running joke was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He ministered in an unimpressive, hick Galilean region. And then he was crucified by corrupt Roman and Jewish politicians, the oppressors of God's people. Friends, the hope for the weak is Jesus. He is the promised ruler of Micah 5. He is the one who facilitates the return of God's people to him through his gospel ministry. And he is the shepherd who cares for his people with the strength that they lack. It's interesting that in Advent seasons many years ago, not in modern times, Christians more commonly devoted their attention and time around the Christmas and Advent season on how the first Advent of Christ 
affects the way we think about his second advent. It was a very common thing for the people of God to be very much focused on the return of Christ at Christmas time. Because the hope for Christians at Christmas isn't only rooted in the past. It's rooted in the future too. Because friends, this same Jesus who was born in weakness and whose strength would lead to the spiritual salvation of many and their spiritual restoration to God's kingdom is coming again. And when he comes again, the restoration and salvation of his people will be complete. The strength of Christ will be undeniable. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow down to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as the end of Micah 5, 4 says, they will dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, in many ways, that is already true. The name of Christ has been spread all over the world. His people, therefore, now do dwell secure in Him, knowing that through faith in Christ, their relationship with God is restored. Their eternal hope is secure. But in another sense, these words in Micah 5.4 are about a day that is still coming. And the Christmas scene in Bethlehem reminds us of it, or at least it should. And so here's the message of hope from Micah to God's people. Despite all the sin that you see around you, and despite how powerless and weary you feel, God is strong. And He has sent Christ That's the message of hope from Micah to God's people then. That's the message of hope from Micah to God's people now. That despite all the sin you see around you, despite how powerless and weary you feel, your God is strong and He's yours through Christ. I wonder if perhaps this has come up in your mind already. When the Apostle Paul was feeling his weakness quite keenly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was suffering under a trial unknown to us. And he pours out his burden to the Lord. And what does the Lord say to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. I think that's part of what Micah 5 is saying. That the people of God were in dire need of his intervention. And in his grace, he did in Christ intervene, which is why then Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 12 in the verse that follows, therefore, I will gladly boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And so, This Christmas, may we be blessed with the same kind of certain hope that believes and knows that no matter the real and painful weaknesses that we experience as we await Christ's return, because of His second coming, we who have received Him by faith have a sure and certain hope. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, please do 
come quickly. We do long for full and final restoration at your appearance again. We do moan and groan with labor pains, as it were, in the time that we are in. With our own sins and our own suffering in this broken and sin-stained world. But Lord, as we look to the arrival of our Christ in Bethlehem, we are reminded of Your return that is coming and the hope that we have, therefore, now. Please help us as the weak to find hope in our Christ. Let's continue in prayer for just a few moments.